יום יבוא ונשתה עדיו לחיים בעיר ציון היפה ירושלים וכשהיום יבוא יונת העוף גבוה ישוב הזמר אל ביתו כולנו נזמר אותו שלום, שלום, שלום! My name is Michael Sano and welcome, welcome, welcome to this episode of the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Um, this is episode number 16. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to cover some weird topics that, that they do relate. They absolutely do relate, but they're going to be interestingly about different subjects. They're going to touch on history and travel. Um, I hope I do this. Uh, I know I'll do this successfully. Um, but first, um, what I would like to do is, uh, hey, I'd like to tell you, listen, if this is your first time watching us on the video version of this podcast, please, please, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Um, and the notification bell so that you are always in the loop and you'll always know um, when we have a fresh brand new episode out. Um, also, if you want to take us with you on your way to work or to the gym, you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Also, I would like to let you know in the last episode, episode 15, I gave a big reveal um, about who was coming on the uh, who was coming on the podcast in February. Um, I gave you the lowdown. I gave you uh, who did I give you? Doran Almog, who is from Ale, a retired general. Stav Shafir, a member of Knesset, the uh, lead singer for Balkan Beatbox. Tomer Yosef, uh, DJ Aviel Brandt, who um, I hope you went and checked all those guys out. Um, they're amazing. They're a lot of fun, um, but I'm doing all of that out of pocket, and it's going to be at the C Executive Suites in February. Um, it's costing me, in total, right around ten grand. Um, and I'd like, if you could, if you could, if you can't, and you just want to enjoy this podcast, I totally understand. Um, but if you could, could you go to our website, hit the PayPal button, and donate two dollars to us? Um, as I said, it's about ten grand. Um, and of the equipment and payments that I've made already uh, for stuff were not short. I mean, short is the wrong word to use. We're about $5,700 shy. <laughs> How's that? We're $5,700 shy. I got to get, uh, I got to pay for airfare. I got to pay for the hotel where we're giving the interviews. Really, really swanky. Um, gives it a really professional atmosphere. It's at the C Executive Suites and the Business Suite. And, uh, yeah, if you could help us out, that'd be great. All right, as I start every one of these podcasts, um, I do it by giving shout-outs to our sponsors. Our first one is iConnect. iConnect, engagement with Israel that earns you rewards. Earn points and connect with Israel with articles, games, quizzes, polls, and more. So what exactly is iConnect? Well, iConnect is a social gaming platform where you can play, earn points, and receive cool prizes all for free. Now, why should you play? Because iConnect introduces you to a unique way to acquaint yourself with all things Israel while working towards winning once-in-a-lifetime experiences. So head on over to www.iconnect.co.il that's www.ikonnect.co.il and start playing now. Um, shout out to Shoshana um, and all the people over there. You guys are rock stars. Go to the website. Check it out. A lot of fun stuff on there. Our next one is from Israel Phones. Israel Phones is the leading provider of communication devices for people traveling to Israel. <clears throat> Israel Phones offers SIM cards, MiFi devices, which are mobile Wi-Fi hotspots, a lifesaver, by the way, travel products, and serves the connectivity needs uh, of tour groups, synagogues, schools, community missions, study programs, and individuals. 
supplying you with international prepaid SIM cards, cell phones, and USB portable modem hotspot rentals. Right now, because of watching this show, yay us, Israel Phones will give you a free SIM card, which is a $15 value if you spend $30 or more on their site. If you have to, all you have to do to get this deal is to use the coupon code 12 cities in Israel. It's all one word, the number one, two cities in Israel, no spaces when checking out on your next order. For more information on what Israel phones can do for you and to get this great deal, please visit www.israelphones.com. That's www.israelphones.com. So now we get to the meat. Um, so what's this episode about? I was, I was a little ambiguous in the beginning. Um, this episode is about the one-eyed warrior Moshe Dayan and, and Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. So, um, for those of you who know anything about Moshe Dayan, um, Jerusalem the segue into talking about Jerusalem won't be that far, but for those of you who are uh, who know who Moshe Dayan is but don't know much about the history, it's going to seem a little confusing. So um, Moshe Dayan uh, was an IDF general. He was also the chief of staff. He was a member of what is uh, what was the Mapai Party, which became the Labor party, which is now the current um, uh, left-leaning party in Israel, uh, labor. Uh, one of the uh, one of the people that we're going to have on the show, she was a member of the labor party. She was, uh, she was a Knesset member um, who served in the Knesset under labor. She has since moved on to another party, and I don't have it on the top of my head right now, but um, Mapai is the father of the Israeli Labor Party, which would, its equivalent in the United States would be the Democratic Party. So Mapai um, was known as a center-left party, but we're not talking about that right now. We're going to talk about Moshe Dayan, and Peter, who is my number one fan, will appreciate that I need to just take a real quick sip of coffee. This is for you, Peter. Hmm. <laughs> Nice, big slurp. My grandmother is losing her mind right now. So, um, all right. So, for those of you who don't know, Moshe Dayan, you, you've probably seen, he looks like he's awesome. He looks like a Bond villain. So, he's got this balding mane and this, uh, this eye patch. And he literally, 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 before the age of rock stars, he was um, Israel's first rock star. Everybody loved him. Um, so he was born actually in 1915 in a place, and this is interesting. This is, this is kind of cool because this gives you a little bit of an idea about pre-state Israel. He was born on a kibbutz that was established in 1910 in the Galilee, in the Kinneret. So in Hebrew, um, the Galilee is known as the uh, Kinneret, which is uh, harp. So because of its shape, it was called the harp. So um, the kibbutz that he was born on was called uh, Degania Aleph. So Degania Aleph was established in 1910 before the state of Israel in, all right, are you ready for this? I'm going to try not to slaughter these too bad. Um, Sanjak Ako. Okay, now a Sanjak is a prefecture. So there was Sanjak Ako, Sanjak Yerushalayim, or Jerusalem, which was uh, the Jerusalem district or prefecture, it, which was huge, by the way. That stretched all the way down to Beersheba in the south, which is, is if you look on a map, it's quite a, I mean, if you're there, it's, it's far. So <coughs> the Galilee and Akko aren't close together. That's the reason I bring up Beersheba and Jerusalem. Um, the Galilee's not near 
Akko, or the city of Acre, as people in the West call it. So Sanjak Akko uh, was a prefecture in the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire, um, that that's all this area was. It wasn't known as Palestine. Palestine was a name that was given um, by the Romans in order to, and it's interesting about that, in order to de-Judaize the population because in Roman government, society, the Caesar or whoever the king is, the emperor, um, is a god. And there is contention between, you know, hey, I'm Caesar, I'm a god. You guys say you pray to the one true God. Well, I hate to break it to you guys, but I'm Caesar and I'm God. So that, so in order to, uh, and I'm using parenthetical quotes with my fingers, um, in order to correct this, um, the Caesars uh, named it uh, Palestine after the inhabitants who existed and lived in uh, Israel um, and the kingdom of Judah before, and that was the Philistines. So um, it, what my, my entire point for bringing that up is that um, names are important because names are... So objectivity is the key to the truth. And if you can be objective and you can be historically objective and you can name things as they were throughout history, you come to a better understanding overall. I'm not, I'm not falling one side or the other. I'm just telling you, look, this is what it was. So in the, uh, in Sanjak Akko, there was, there was the kibbutz, um, the Ghania Aleph, and that was established in 1910 in the Ottoman Empire. And that's where Moshe Dayan was born. So I read a really interesting, um, biography about him and he he was just I mean it, it's funny he was one of these warrior poets um he had this obsession with the land the land of Israel so um and I'll get into that a little bit late well no because I'm not gonna focus on the end of his life I'm gonna segue um later and one of the things that Moshe Dayan got in a lot of trouble for was uh I don't so Actually, it's pretty much, I said objective. The only way to describe it is he pretty much went in and pillaged um, archaeological, well, historical sites. But his pillaging wound up being, uh, changing those sites into archaeological digs. So he was in contention with, uh, with the intelligentsia, the archaeological community in Israel, uh, because he, was, he, would, he would find these sites. And one of the quotes that one of the people said is, if Moshe Dayan, with one eye, is able to find more than 10 trained archaeologists with both eyes. So, but he would just, he would just go find stuff. And when he passed away, it was found that he had this extensive collection of historical um, artifacts you know everything he 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 could spend he would even stop um to take time uh during some of these military campaigns when there was quiet to he he would say hey what's that over there saunter over there check it out and look and the next thing you know he found like pottery from the first temple period so he was he was pretty impressive um so he spent a lot of time his developing years running around um, as a chalutzim, a pioneer in this, what was really an outback um, up in what became northern Israel, out by the uh, the Kinetic, the Galilee, um, just wandering around. He uh, he 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 was living the life of Riley. He, he writes about it in his in his uh, in his memoirs that it was one of the best times of his life. Um, but, as all things, the best time of his life came to an end. And that came about because um, of the Ottoman Empire's involvement 
in World War One and siding with the Axis against the United States, France, and Germany. And uh, the United States, sorry, France and Britain. Whoa, Freudian slip. Um, so he wound up, so after, after uh, um, the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, uh, Great Britain got what would become uh, Mandate Palestine, and France got Mandate Lebanon. But they, it wasn't like, um, from what I understand, it was a pretty large territory that s- sunk into Syria. It was this enormous area. And uh, so he, he was... Uh, he he was there. He was there at the at the uh, at the establishment pre-state. He was there when everything was happening, when all the wheels were moving, when everything. He is a part of that early history. Now we see him as you know, 1967. You know, we see him at at, at Golda Meir's side, but he goes all the way back. He goes all the way back even before him, uh, Yitzhak Rabin. Um, who else? Uh, David Ben Gurion. Um, so he was a contemporary of, we could say, the poet Brenner, who, for those of you who don't know, is one of the uh, one of the poets, um, one of the Jewish poets from that area, um, pre-state. So, all right. So now we've established that he was there. He was up in the Knesset. Uh, he was up in northern what would become Israel. And then the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire occurred. Um, and then all of the axis, again, I'm using the term, but it's a different axis. All of the um, moves by this new axis started happening. Um, and they, they started, it's weird, they started doing all these little colonial pushes to overcome uh, key strategic points throughout the Mediterranean. One of them was the Nazis um, trying to establish a foothold in the Middle East through Lebanon. So the British had a big foothold with the Kingdom of Saud, the Saudi Peninsula, um, Mandate Palestine, and with Egypt. So they had access to a bunch of oil. Um, Germany wanted that same access to oil. So what they did is they put their, they used a proxy, the Vichy Empire, or the Vichy regime in France. And in 1938, um, Moshe Dayan joined this newly developed paramilitary group called the Haganah. The Haganah would, of course, go on, or I say, of course, but you may not know, the Haganah would go on to become um, the IDF, the Israel Defense Force. But in the beginning, it was this small paramilitary Jewish organization that existed um, in Mandate Palestine under control by the British. Um, It was an underground organization that even, and I'll say it, it engaged in some terrorist activities against the British because um, what they saw as um, a very one-sided, actually there are anti-Semitic writings among some of the British who were in control of Egypt and though those people were so Egypt was the flow through for the British government into um, mandate Palestine um, and there were there was a lot of anti-semitic um, sentiment among the British uh, in in mandate Palestine that caused them to do some pretty crappy things to the to the Jews or or not only do crappy things but uh, refrained from doing anything when there were Arab uprisings. And uh, so it, it was, uh, it, it was 
you know, they thought they were behind between a rock and a hard place. And these were farmers. These were, you know, these were people who, who were used to taking control of what they had. So their obvious thought, okay, I have to defend my kibbutz from invaders, raiders, um, whatever. So the next logical step would be for the kibbutzim to organize and to establish their own little paramilitary group, which they did. And uh, in 1938, um, Moshe Dayan became a part of that. He became a part of the Haganah. Now, what's interesting is, enemy of my enemy, um, Vichy, France, France was in control of Mandate Lebanon, so the Vichy regime became in charge of Lebanon. So, and this is where the cool story comes from about his eye patch. So, the Haganah was tasked by the British to go in, infiltrate Lebanon, and fight um, pro-Nazi forces. So they wound up, you know, he was in command of a unit, and he went and, he, and they found this police station. This police station was taken over by the Vichy uh, troops, so they routed them. They went in there, fought them. There was a battle. Boom, done. We got it. So as they're securing it, the surrounding area, Moshe Dayan goes up to the roof with a pair of binoculars. At the moment, he puts the binoculars to his head. Legend has it. A bullet from a sniper hit, went into the eye well and hit sending parts of the binoculars and glass into his eye. Um, if, and, and this is the crazy part, if he hadn't been looking through the binoculars, who knows what would have happened. He could have gotten a bullet right through the head. Um, and then there's no Moshe Dayan. But instead, uh, and he almost died. And one of his compatriots stayed with him and uh, made sure that he was okay. He was fitted with an eye patch. And little fact about this, he was never, ever, ever able to wear a glass eye because when he was shot, and I read this in the biography, this is really interesting. When he was shot, it shattered the bone. This is gross. So there's got to be, there's got to be some kind of muscular suction in order to keep the glass eye in. And he had too much retinal bone damage uh, for it to ever fit. And he went through a couple of operations. None of them were successful. And he was always very self-conscious about the eye patch. But what he didn't realize is he was, uh, what I mean, it became his trademark. It is who he is. If you have an eye, who's the guy from Israel with the eye? Moshe Dayan. Yep. Boom. Done. And he was known and lauded as a hero for having it. So that was in... uh, that was in 1941 during World War II. So who who knew he was a World War II vet and not that he wasn't even in World War II? I mean, he was in World War II. Um, but who knew that that was even a theater and that Israel participated? So we knew Jewish soldiers participated, but now you know that Israel itself, the Haganah, pre-state Israel, participated in... Um, the fight for the allies. So he's a member of the Haganah. Hold on. Quick step. Mm. I have uh, a, <coughs> uh, sorry, a little bit of a hiccup. So um, needed, I needed some coffee real quick. Um, all right. I may not get to Jerusalem on this episode because I could talk about Moshe Dayan all day long, he is. He's the one-eyed warrior. I, I love him. He's such a badass. He really, really, really is. Um, and he exemplifies the Maskalim. Uh, who to know? So the Maskalim were these this group of, of writers who wanted to uh, invigorate the Jewish man uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, who, who would have known that... Uh, they, they couldn't have even imagined a hero like Moshe Dayan. Um, they were the people. But ironically, those Maskalim, those writers, were the ones who inspired people like his parents 
to start the Mosha, uh, to start the kibbutz, um, the Gani Aleph, in 1910. So I mean, that's awesome. That's so cool. So all right. So 1948, 1947 was the vote, right? I think. So the vote in 1947 uh, to partition Palestine um, occurred, and all hell broke loose in the Arab world. They were just totally, totally upset. No, 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 no. The Jews, the preliminary government that would eventually become the the, uh, Israeli government, which was... Um, what was that? That that was the uh, WJC, the World Jewish Congress, the Jewish Congress, um, which set the framework as proposed by um, Theodore Herzl. Um, I'm covering a lot of ground here, so I'm sorry. Um, but we're gonna do this. We're gonna do history, a little bit of history, because I think the history part. There's buffs out there who are like, holy cow. I didn't know that. Moshe Dayan got shot in the eye on top of a police station in Syria by French people. So, um, anyways, so, yeah. So, in 1947 was the vote. They said no. Um, They set a timetable for 1948 to leave. Ben Green got up and said, with his awesome hairdo, oh, my gosh, he looks amazing. Um got up and uh, declared independence and declared the Jewish state. And the Jewish state came into existence. And the next day, uh, the combined forces of all of the Arab countries surrounding Israel came down. Um, And who was that? That was uh, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, and Iraq. And I think I got those right. Yeah, sure. Um, so, so um, in 1948, the War of Independence started, and Moshe Dayan served as a commander of, I think, the 89th Battalion. And I'm not, I don't know a lot about his role in the War of Independence. And that's, that's actually interesting. I'm going to have to, I should have thumbed through that, but I didn't, I didn't even think to look in that. But yes, he was, uh, he was a commander of a unit. Um, he was in charge of, I think, a, a battalion. Um, a lot of guys. I don't even know what the structure was for the... Uh, and it was the Haganah at the time. So what's interesting about this, though, and this is where it gets kind of funky and fish. Um, so you had two opposing groups. You had the Haganah, which were the legit... As, well, according to them, at the time, they were the legit um, paramilitary defense organization of the Jews. You also had another group called the Irgun. Now, the Irgun, inside them, they had a group called the Stern Gang. The Stern Gang, they had a very nasty reputation. I don't know the validity. I don't know the veracity of it. But there's actually something interesting that I was speaking to someone, uh, a professor of mine, when I was at City College. So the Irgun were responsible on paper for this massacre that happened um, against this Arab village where they are, they are, it's said that they threw grenades indiscriminately into houses and killed women, children, old people, everyone. So... And there was a member of the Red Cross who went after, after it all happened. No, There were no eyewitnesses on paper. There was just an after-action report, which was done. And this was, I mean, 1948. So it's not like, you know, CSI or anything like that. Um, there was a report by a member. I think it was either a... It was either a journalist who was on behalf of the Red Cross or someone, I don't know, and I if I keep doing it, I'm going to wind up digging a deeper, deeper ditch. But, so, this is where it gets kind of interesting and kind of fish. Um, 
So all the reports condemning the Irgun came from Mapai, or no, yes, came from Mapai and the Haganah, okay, the correct uh, paramilitary organization. The Irgun were always kind of not, you know, they were, all right, whatever, you want to do that, just don't give us a black eye, you know what I mean? And then when this happened, I, from what I understand and the way it's been explained to me is that this happened gave the gave David Ben-Gurion the excuse that he needed to lock down Menachem Begin and his Irgun because uh, Menachem Begin was a member of the Irgun. Um, and it's where that early contention between the Labor Party and the what would become Likud uh, came from. So from what I understand, things may not have happened the way they did in that massacre. The massacres are horrible. I'm in no way, shape, or form making any justification for the killing of civilians, for the killing of children, women, old people. Never. Absolutely not. What I am saying is that from what appears, from the way it appears, Ben-Gurion's government and the Haganah used this as the excuse to rein in the Irgun paramilitary organization. Um, and that events may have not transpired as they appear in the history books. Now, what does this have to do with Moshe Dayan, you're asking? Well, this is crazy. Moshe Dayan was then tasked with disarming this group. Okay, so on paper, this group is horrible. This group does horrible deeds. Now I want you to go take their guns away. Oh my gosh. Talk about scary for one. And the fact that he did it, super, super balls to him. He's awesome. It just inflates his um, status even more. Now, as to whether or not all this is, is and this is, where, this is where I was told by my professor, you have to be careful because a lot of this happened in a fluctuating, tumultuous time. So what do they say? Victory is written by the, uh, history is written by the victors. So who knows? Who knows? Um, all right, we're at our halfway point. Um, I'm having a lot of fun with this. I don't know if you can, you can tell. I am geeking the hell out on this history. Um, but right now, what I need to do is I need to, uh, one, I need to give a couple shout-outs from, uh, from my sponsors. And my first one is Neviot. Um, Neviot flavored water, nature at its best taste. Neviot delivers you with a true combination of health and pleasure. It is based on Neviot natural mineral water, one of its kind in Israel. It is enhanced with five B group vitamins. It's naturally sweetened. It is low in calories, only 35. <coughs> Excuse me. That was so rude. I'm so sorry. Only 35 to 40 calories per 8 fluid ounces. There are no preservatives, no color additives. It is available in delicious, indulging flavors, apple, peach, and grape that I'm holding right here. Um, if you're in Israel, you should be drinking Neviot. For more information, check out their website at www.neviotglobal.com forward slash en forward slash home. That's www.neviotglobal. N-E-V-I-O-T global <laughs> dot com forward slash E-N home. This stuff is awesome. Um, it's actually, I was talking about the Connecticut, the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and that's where this water's from. Um, and it's amazing. If you want to get this water, go to our next sponsor, and they are Makolet Online. Um, Makolet Online's main goal is to make Israeli groceries and Judaic products affordable and available to everyone in the USA and Canada. 
Their online store carries items that are unavailable in most places um, in North America. Things like tahini, Israeli chocolates, frozen borekas, and the Neviat water that we are showing you today. At Makolet Online, you will find your favorite Israeli goods or simply enjoy brand new flavors. All their products are kosher and most are manufactured in Israel. Um, if you want the taste of Israel delivered to your home, visit www.makoletonline.com and order today for an added bonus. If you use the code 12 cities in Israel, same code that I had for my other sponsor, 12, the number one, two cities in Israel, all one word, no spaces. You will receive 15% off of your entire purchase. So again, visit www.makoletonline.com. Dot com. That's www.makoletonline.com in order today. Um, quickly, I am going to mention again, um, I am going to Israel in February to do the interviews. And if you could be so kind as to visit our website, hit the PayPal button, and uh, give us $2 towards, uh, towards bringing that episode to life. Um, we'd really appreciate it. All right, back to the magnificent Moshe Dayan. Um, all right, so where was I? Where was I? Where was I? We were at the War of Independence, and we were at the disarming of the Irgun by Moshe Dayan. Um, as some would say, uh, ridiculous uh, in its... Oh, just scariness, the sheer, I mean, imagine that. Imagine going to an armed group of people, and some of these, hold on, I'm going to take a sip because my throat is getting a little dry. Give me one moment. Okay, so, so, um, yeah, I mean, the Stern Gang had a reputation for just coming into your house and taking you out. Boom, you were done. Um, if you were seen as a traitor to uh, to the the Israeli Jewish cause, so having to go in and disarm these people um, took a Superman, so to speak. And from what um, from all accounts, I mean, people had a really, really, really uh, high. They held him in really high esteem, and and he were duly impressed by what he had done. And you know, so I guess it's a no brainer if you're going to pick someone to go disarm uh, <laughs> a rival faction, you would pick Moshe Dayan. Um, all right, but so basically, the reason why uh, they they had done that, uh, the reason why that had happened. Um, was because also in 1948, Moshe Dayan was put in charge of the Jewish-controlled areas of Jerusalem. So at the end of the independence uh, war, Jordan annexed um, the West Bank. They annexed all the land from the Jordan River up to what was the uh, the Green Line, I suppose it would be called. Um, and... And this is important because a lot of times there is a misunderstanding that the War of Independence, um, that the Palestinian, the the Arab residents of that um, area had something to do with it. But no, this was a, a this was a regular twentieth century land war between the Arab um, states that surrounded Israel and the newly formed state of Israel. The Arab residents. Um, and and again, this is where objectivity comes in, and on both sides. If you don't like it, I'm gonna I'm gonna use a bad word. Tough shit. You know what I mean? Um, there were instances where Arabs left their homes, okay, of their own volition, uh, at the behest of the Arab armies, okay. So that's one narrative, but that narrative has truth. Um, they were told, you know, you'll come right back as soon as we've slaughtered the the Jews. And it wasn't the Israelis. They said, as soon as we slaughter the Jews, you can come back. Um, and they never did because they, for a number of reasons, uh, some they weren't allowed to. Uh, 
And then I think, what was it? Uh, because it's always told that it's broken down into thirds. And, and that has a lot of val- validity to it. So a third of them left. Okay. Um, we're told by uh, Arab scouts, I guess, came up and they said, You're, you got to go. We're going to come through. We don't want you to get hurt. Please leave. And they did. They packed up their belongings. Boom. They they hightailed it out with the expectation that they were going to come back to a Arabized, fully Arabized um, state. Um, and then, let's be honest, another third of them were told to leave by Israeli forces. And they weren't nice about it. You know what I mean? I'm... I, Got to be ob- objective. We got to be honest here. Um, so they were. They were told, look, you got to go. This is our state now. Um, so what did they do? They feared for their lives. What would you do? Pack up your stuff and you get the hell out of Dodge because you left because you were afraid. Okay. So a third of them left at the behest of Arab armies out of fear uh, for the coming war. Another third left because they were told to leave by Israeli forces. Let's be honest. And then another third stayed and eventually became the residents that are there now. If they were in the Israeli territories, they became Arab Israelis. If they were in the West Bank or Gaza, they became what be, they became Palestinians. That's bottom line. That's what happened. Um, that Palestinian title was also given to those who fled. So there were refugee camps set up in Lebanon. There were refugee camps set up in Syria. There were refugee camps set up in uh, Jordan, um, in Egypt. And... Um, so 50% of all of the Arabs who left during the War of Independence left at the behest of the Arabs, the advancing Arabs, um, and we're told that come back when it's all over, there will be, it'll be uh, an Arab state. Um, and then 50% or 50% of those who left left at the behest of uh, Israeli forces. So, um, the reason, uh, I bring that up. The reason why I bring that up is because Jordan then came and annexed that whole West bank, Egypt annexed the, uh, the Gaza strip and Jerusalem was split and Moshe Dayan became, um, the commander of military forces in that area. Now, I sent a, oh, I sent a Instagram post. I posted an Instagram post from the mall. Mamila, Mamila, Mamila. I'm probably saying it wrong. The mall right outside of the old city of Jerusalem. That was, interestingly, the demarcation line, um, prior to uh the six-day war um so that was as far as you can go so if you've ever been to jerusalem and you've ever been to the mamila mall which has a uh a ton of really nice shops and a, a place where you can buy crocs um i went there with my wife and that is the demarcation line and it wasn't it was a ghetto a slum at the time nobody lived there it was no man's land um, so that's interesting. So, um, so he became the commander of all Jewish, fo- uh, of all military forces in the Jewish areas, uh, controlled by, uh, all areas of Jerusalem that were controlled by Israeli forces, all Jewish controlled areas. That's the way it was phrased. Um, that was it right at the end. And that's why he was responsible for going in and taking, uh, disarming the Ergun um, and the Stern Gang and those guys. And then in 1949, he rose in rank 
and became uh, the head of the Southern Command. The Southern Command is in Beersheba. And that's important because um, in 1953, yes, 1953, hold on, I'm going to take another sip of coffee. So Moshe Dayan is often known as the father of the IDF. The reason for that is because in 1953, he became um, the IDF chief of staff. Now, the IDF chief of staff is really a big deal. You have the Ministry of Minister of Defense, and then you have the chief of staff. Now, the chief of staff is responsible for ensuring the readiness of all soldiers, um, implementing planning, implementing guidelines, all that stuff. The minister of defense is mostly responsible, from what I understand, for ensuring um, they get the money that they need and that uh, information and command from the political side gets to goes through the appropriate channels to be implemented by the military. Um, it can either be chief of staff is an immensely powerful position. Uh, Ministry of Defense, uh, the Minister of Defense, excuse me, is one of those positions that can be powerful, but can also wind up being uh, lame in the sense that you're not able to do anything because your chief of staff is so powerful that um, you, you just, you're, you're unable to really, <laughs> you become ineffective, so to speak. Um, now, and, and he set the model for that. He set the model for the chief of staff being such an important position Um he took on that position in 1953, and in doing that, he uh, he ensured that uh, combat units were strengthened uh, by removing that bureaucratic red tape um, and moved all of the uh, the what would be logistical um, issues such as supplies and all that over to the civilian side of the Ministry of Defense, um, leaving their budget just or training and um, um, and readiness. So he was responsible for that. He was also um, responsible for developing mandates for the intelligence and the training branches uh, of the Israeli army. So he was uh, he, there. He he was responsible for making sure that. Um, the intelligence apparatus uh, that the army relied on was functional and effective. Um, he was just phenomenal. He was also um, he was also for uh, it, responsible for reorganiz reorganizing the mobilization plan for reservists. So. When you get out of the military, everyone has to be in the military. When you get out, you go into the reserves um, for a number of years. I'm not sure how long, um, but he was responsible for making sure that all of those people were trained on par with the active duty military, as well as having the same equipment and knowledge and understanding of the equipment. So if you needed to move an active duty unit off the theater due to casualties, uh, combat ineffectiveness. You could move a reserve unit onto their equipment. Boom. They knew what was going on. Um, he was also, uh, responsible for, um, organizing branches within the, uh, Israeli military of, uh, with first strike capability. So he's responsible for unit 101, um, a commando unit and all the subsequent commando units that, that birthed from that. Um, and also uh, the strike capability of the Israeli Air Force and uh, their armor brigades. The Israeli army has these amazing armor brigades. Um, and it's funny because routinely uh, during all the wars, there have been these mass 
tank battles and uh, the Israeli army due to Moshe Dayan specifically have been able to route the enemy because of this. Um, he is responsible for basically making the IDF what it is today, a respectable fighting force. Um, now, this all came about, not came about, this all uh, was proven in uh, 1956 when Gamel Abdel Nasser, the, uh, the leader of uh, Egypt, decided that he was going to take the Suez Canal. And uh, so the French and the British said, uh, hell no. Um, and with the support of the IDF, routed uh, his forces in the Sinai almost fully destroyed them. Um, and then, which is interesting, um, the Soviet Union and the United States told them to stop and turned the Suez back over to Egypt and set the stage for the Six-Day War. Now, this by this time, the Six-Day War, 1967, um, and this is where I'm going to wind it up. Um, I have so much more to talk about about him. Um, but by this time, um, Nasser had decided that he wanted the Jews. He, he was so incensed at his defeat. And this is where it comes from. Um, you can look for colorful uh, reasons. But bottom line, he got whooped. Nasser got whooped, and his pride couldn't take it. So he got everyone together again. And I'm going to take a sip of coffee. And they tried to do the same thing that they did during the War of Independence. They tried to go from the river to the ocean, and it didn't work. It didn't work at all. Why didn't it work? Because... Moshe Dayan had fielded an effective force and the chief of staff during the Six-Day War, Yitzhak Rabin, was able to use the structures and tools that had been implemented by Moshe Dayan to effectively, effectively defeat all of these forces. Um... It's, it's really a fascinating story. If you can watch a documentary on the Six-Day War or pick up, a book about, um, pick up a book about Moshe Dayan, it's fascinating. Um, the, the routing of the Jordanians, and it's funny because um, I think it was Moshe Dayan specifically who, who was speaking with, uh, I don't know, I could be wrong. Let's just say Israel was speaking with Jordan um, and saying, look, bro, don't do this. Don't do this. You got, we got no problem with you as long as you don't jump onto the Abdel uh, Nasser bandwagon and attack us. And uh, they did. And for that, they lost the annexed West Bank and uh, East Jerusalem. Um, you, get, you reap what you sow, bro. Um, it stinks, uh, but that's, that's the bottom line. That's what happened. And because of that, the biggest, well, because of that, Moshe Dayan wound up in the end walking through the streets of the old city of Jerusalem. And it is the reason why today, um, Jews can now pray at um, the Kotel, the Western Wall, uh, because of Moshe Dayan. So um, whichever side you fall on, however you feel about it, uh, he is an icon of Israeli history. Um, he's fascinating for so many reasons, uh, some of which I haven't even been able to cover here. Um, but Moshe Dayan... Uh, is a rock star. So, all right. Um, that, I never got to talk about Jerusalem. The only Jerusalem stuff I got to talk about was Moshe Dayan coming through in the end. 
Um, but we will uh, maybe no, maybe next episode I'll talk about Jerusalem and I'll uh, yeah, uh, maybe I'll finish up on Moshe Dayan. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Got to tune in to find out. All right. Um, so at the end of all of my podcasts, I like to tell you about a couple of organizations that are very important to me and very dear to me. And one of them, um, the first one I'm going to tell you about, they're going to come on during our interviews and uh, speak to us about what they do. Um, and that first one is Ale. Um, Ale helps children with complex disabilities receive state-of-the-art medical, educational, and rehabilitative care in Ale's four facilities. In addition, Ale provides thousands of outpatient treatments annually. Without Ale, many of these children would be forced to spend their lives in hospitals with no opportunities for rehabilitation, education, and the love and warmth of a home. Please visit www.ale.org. That's www.aleh.org and see if there is a way that you can help. They are wonderful. They are a great organization. They set up um, special needs communities inside communities, and uh, they're just they're wonderful. Um, please help them out. The next one I'd like to tell you about is Schneider Children's Medical Center of Israel. It is the only comprehensive tertiary care hospital of its kind in the country and in the Middle East, offering the full range of pediatric disciplines under one roof to all children from 0 to 18. Since its establishment in 1991, Schneider Children's has revolutionized the practice of pediatric medicine in the country and has been recognized as one of the leading pediatric institutions in the world. To see what you can do for them, please visit www.schneider.org.il forward slash ENG. That's www. S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R dot O-R-G dot I-L forward slash E-N-G. Um, yeah, they are absolutely amazing. Um, please go check them out. I found out about them through uh, Kululam, this group that does these uh, large sing-alongs. Um, if you can help them out, please definitely uh, do that. Ale Schneider, they're both wonderful groups. Um, also, I've been telling you guys uh, at the beginning and in the middle that we're going back in February. Um, it's all out of pocket. If you could uh, maybe help us out and go over to our website, www.12citiesinisrael.com, hit the uh, PayPal button and donate $2. That would really help us out. Um, the whole thing's going to cost about ten grand. Um I need about 57 right now. We've had some donations. You guys are wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, every uh, every two bucks helps. And that's all we're asking for is if people could, you know, <sighs> donate two bucks and give us a hand. So, all right. Um, thank you so much for joining us for the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our feed. And become a part of the 12 Cities in Israel community. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. And we'll be bringing you a brand new podcast every single week. So keep your eyes out for that. Also, to help support this podcast, you can visit our Patreon page and become a regular donor. You can find that page at www.patreon.com forward slash 12 cities in Israel, the number one, two cities in Israel. Um, also, please visit our YouTube channel where you can see a video version of this podcast plus other videos that we have produced, including our full-length travel episode on the city of Beersheba in southern Israel. It's awesome. Um, it's got like 17, almost 1,800 views. Check it out. While you're there, share it and uh, subscribe. Hit the notification bell so you can get the brand new podcast video episodes. Um, Check out our website, www.12citiesinisrael.com. Check out our Facebook page and check us out on Instagram where every day um, I try to post a brand new picture of our Israeli travels. Um, all right, that's it. Yalla, bye.
נתתי לה את כל חיי, ולא נותר בי רגע של מנוח. 